So this is sort of a father in the faith sitting down with sons. And wouldn't you know it, my two sons that attend this church, neither one of them are here. Uh, so you're going to have to be you're going to have to be my sons. I do have some grandsons that may be in here. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, let's let's get right into it. The book of Proverbs, a quick review. You you tell me who's the author. Oh, God, you're so enthusiastic this morning. The author is Solomon, who's uh, the son of David and very good, very good. He reigned as king of Israel for 40 years. He did it between about 970, that's over a thousand years before Jesus came, between 970 and 930 BC. Most people don't realize he started reigning at the age of 20. He was just about 20 years old when he started reigning. Do we have anybody in here about 20? Close to, yeah. No, you don't. We're not getting away with that. Just stop and think about reigning at the age of 20. Now, um, another thing we don't think about very much, Moses probably wrote uh, human personality. Moses wrote most of the Old Testament. Did you know that Solomon's number two? Solomon wrote the second most amount of scripture in the Old Testament. And you probably already know what those books are. Uh, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. He wrote the Song of Solomon probably when he was a young romantic. It's a very exciting book to read. You're agreeing with me, aren't you? Yeah. He wrote uh, Proverbs probably at a mature point in his leadership. And he wrote Ecclesiastes in his senior years. We are in the book of Proverbs this morning. Uh, I'd like to look at 1 Kings 4, 31 through 32. It says he was wiser, speaking of Solomon, he was wiser than any other man. That in itself is something significant. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. So if the Song of Solomon made it into scriptures and he wrote 1,005, you know that the Song of Songs, which is a beautiful story of intimacy and love to God. It's actually between the Shulamite maiden and the king, but it's a beautiful story. But Proverbs, he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. Uh, we have 31 chapters representing 915 verses in the book of Proverbs, so we're not even getting to hear, hear all of them. But this is the man, Solomon. Solomon's name means peaceful, and that did define his reign. You'll remember Pastor Mike said last week that it, it was really an unprecedented time in the life of Israel. It was probably the zenith of her glory. She had the greatest geographical expanse in terms of kingdom, and there was no violence or no warfare. So his name was prophetic of the reign in the period of time he, uh, he was there. There is a theme verse for the book of Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. And we're going to look at that real quickly. The fear of the Lord, and that's my text for this morning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is a mistake to think that the fear of the Lord only means reverence. I know that's where we default to, but I would like to suggest to you that the fear of the Lord at times means being afraid of God. It means the fear of the Lord. If you think about all of the men and women in Scripture that were smitten on their face when they came into the manifest presence of God, not the omnipotence of God, or I don't mean just the omnipotence or the omnipresence of God, because God is everywhere in all things. God is everywhere, right? That's the omnipresence of God. But the manifest presence of God is when God is there with you. And, and you know what? I had early in my life as a young man, I had just, well, saved less than six months. 
And uh, early in my life, I had an encounter in the basement bedroom where I lived back in Wichita, Kansas. I was praying on my bed. I was turned facing the wall and the presence of God came into that room and it was so heavy and so weighty that I knew if I turned around, I'd see God. Now, I didn't turn around and I don't know if I would have seen God or not. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying in the manifest presence of God, it was a fearful thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That passage goes on and says, we'll look at it again, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Um, beware of a gospel that features only grace and not truth. You know, uh, the great incarnation chapter uh, of John chapter 1, verse 114, it says, um, it says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. I love the grace of God. It's, it's, it seems like it's all about the grace of God, isn't it? But you have to remember it's grace and truth. He is also a God of justice, God of correction. So uh, the fear of the Lord is the key that unlocks the door to wisdom into the room of righteousness and understanding. Actually, might be surprised to know that the phrase, the fear of God, appears in Scripture 21 times. Guess how many times the love of God appears in Scripture? 12 times. Interesting comment, isn't it? Proverbs is a collection of couplets. It's a, it's a collection of a whole lot of sayings that are two or three or four lines long where it compares and contrasts things like wisdom and folly, good and evil, death and life, prosperity and poverty, honor and dishonor, truth and falsehood, fidelity versus adultery, righteousness versus wickedness, industry versus indolence. Uh, for those of you that don't know what industry means, we're talking about laziness or being a sluggard or sloth versus, uh, you know, industry as being productive and working. Um, but let's talk about personal application, and then I want to get into where we're going to go with these nine different uh, key verses. Personal application from the book of Proverbs, just generally thinking about the umbrella sort of overview of the whole book, okay? Probably the most significant principle in the book is that wisdom originates in God. Wisdom originates in God. Now, you're sitting there, and I'm trying to think, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's obvious. Um, but when you live it out, when you dress it in dem denim and walk it out, what actually happens is that we pretty much operate in life out of our mind, out of our intellect, and out of our education. And we really miss the point that wisdom originates in God. I've got a passage for you to look at from 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 18 through 20. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then he goes on and he says in verse 24, Christ is the wisdom of God. Coming from a background of higher education and academia as the president of a small college, I can tell you that I ran into this like a brick wall smack into my face uh, where, where professors and academia really do believe that God... Um, 
works primarily through the mind. And I know some of you sitting here with me this morning really do believe that God primarily works through the mind. And we're going to talk about that at the end of the message. But I would just like to share with you that one of the primary principles in Proverbs is that wisdom originates in God. Number two, wisdom is available to everyone, but the price is very high. Wisdom is available to everyone, but the price is very high. Uh, the price is far above rubies, far above silver or gold. Requires humility and obedience and suffering and, and a lot more. And the third principle is that righteousness or right living flows out of wisdom. They're linked together. So in other words, it is wise to be good and it is good to be wise. It's wise to be good and it's good to be wise. Now, let's leave there and go where I want to go. Uh, that's just sort of an overview of everything. Everyday kingdom principles. There are things that you use in your house every day. If you're in the kitchen, you're probably going to pull out a pair of scissors sometime, or you're going to use a scotch tape. Uh, you set the table and you use glasses. If you're a guy out in your man cave, uh, I, hardly a day goes by, I don't use a screwdriver for something. You know, the, the, you, there's a saw, there's the hammer, there's just things you use every day. You use, you use clothes, you use everyday things. Proverbs is this treasure trove. It's a collection of everyday things that affect the way you live and, and righteousness flowing out of your life. And I want to talk about three broad categories. First of all, warnings to welcome. Secondly, I want to talk about strategies to success or strategies for success. And thirdly, I want to talk about promises to possess. And I'm going to give you three key passages under each one of those areas. And they're just, they're taken at random because they're out of my life. And they're life stories that touch me. So let's begin with warnings to welcome. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? To always give me hope, to always lift me up, to always encourage me. Yeah, that's true. But it's also for re reproof and for correction and for an instruction in righteousness. That's what, that's what the scripture is all about. In fact, Proverbs 12.1, in fact, this is so blunt, I almost can't believe it's in the word. It's so, Proverbs 12.1, it says, he who hates correction is stupid. It's just that simple. And, and that in your face, he who hates correction is stupid. So Proverbs is filled with warnings. I'm only going to talk about three of them this morning, but it's filled with warnings. If you want to live rightly, read Proverbs regularly, and it will help guide you. The first one I want to talk about is Proverbs 1, 20 to 26. And uh, we're going to actually read it here as we look at it. Proverbs 1, 20 to 26. Wisdom calls aloud outside. Hmm, that's curious. Not sure what that means. She raises her voice in the open square. She cries out in the chief concourses at the opening of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, in the margin it says, you naive ones. How long, you naive ones, will you love naivete? Let's keep going. For scorners delight in their scorning. Fools hate knowledge. They turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse. Now remember, wisdom's crying from the outside. She's crying in the public market square. She's crying in the streets. But you have refused. And so I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. Let's keep going. I also will laugh at your calamity and will mock when your terror comes. That is a hard word. That is a hard word. 
But to my sons and to you, let, let me share with you as a father in the faith that wisdom is on the outside. And that's a lesson you need to learn in life. And I wish my father would have sat me down and talked to me about that. I wish a mentor or a coach somewhere along the line would have said something to me about where I could find wisdom on the outside. I've served on a lot of governing boards, boards of directors. I've served on governing boards of colleges. I've served on governing boards of uh, denominations and parachurch organizations and all kinds of different associations. There is an inherent danger, for instance, this is just an illustration, there's an inherent danger when people meet together on a recurring basis and they become friends and they start to uh, talk about the same issues all the time. You can study this in organizational behavior and management and in leadership development. It, it's an amazing thing how it happens. I've watched it happen. And you get what's called groupthink. Has anybody here ever heard about groupthink? Now, I have a definition for you up here. Groupthink, it's the practice of decision-making as a group that discourages individual responsibility and creativity. It, if we went back to the 70s and talk about the fall of the two Jimmies, uh, the, one of the Jimmies was the big uh, Jim Baker scandal, you remember, in the 70s. And what was, what was his organization called? I forget. Um, anyway, um, his governing board is a per perfect example of that, where they had these wonderful leaders, wise men and women, but they got together, and over a period of years, everything was going so well, you just start trusting the CEO, and you just start making the same decisions together, and the next thing you know, you're making terrible decisions. Personal illustration. When I was serving as president of a small college, uh, we were raising money for endowments and scholarship, and we raised quite a bit of money, and we needed a place to invest it. And so we decided to uh, start an investment committee. And I had to be on it, of course, president of the college. So I was, I was on the investment committee. I got my business manager, and I put him on the investment committee. Uh, and then I got one of our board members, because I knew they wouldn't want us doing stuff without at least one of them there to see what's going on. So I put a board member on the. Now, do you notice what I've done so far? Everybody's on the inside. But wisdom cries out from the outside, the public square from the market. So I reached out to a four-square man in the community that was extremely wealthy. Uh, he was an early investor in Nike and did very well. And then he leveraged that into oil and did very well. And uh, so he was on it, and then I got a broker from the community that was a Christian. But none of them were associated, those two guys were not associated with the college. So that was the five of us. Well, we were investing our money. You know, you try to conserve principal, but get as much growth and, and interest, return on investment as you can get. And along comes this unbelievable investment opportunity. If it's unbelievable, it probably is unbelievable, okay? But I mean, we're talking double-digit returns. We're talking about guaranteed, those were the words, guaranteed double-digit returns on an ongoing basis. I was financially savvy enough to think, uh, I'm not sure. But I started being pressured by board members because you see, churches were investing in it and getting double-digit returns. And districts and regions were investing in it and getting double-digit returns. And next thing I knew, 
the national office was investing in it and getting double-digit returns. So here's the one department in the whole denomination, missions invested in it. It's getting double-digit returns. Here's the one department not investing in it and not getting double-digit returns with our endowments and our scholarship money. And so um, they pressured me. I said, okay, let's invite this guy. I put him on the agenda of the meeting. He came and he made his presentation. Turns out that he was the son of a well-known person in our denomination uh, and had a whole history with us. And so this affinity thing was taking place. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Affinity means sort of like family or together. People knew people who knew people who knew people, and we were all together. To make a long story short, uh, we heard his presentation. I had several board members that wanted to vote on the spot and make it happen. I said, no, I want to go to my investment committee and talk to them about it. I went to my investment committee and talked to them about it. And these two guys on the outside, that's the critical point. The two guys on the outside said to me, Jeff, if this was legitimate, we'd all be doing it. Don't you think we'd all be taking guaranteed double-digit returns if we could get that on our money? They said, do not do it. And so we didn't do it. And we were the loan department in our denomination that did not do it. Uh, within a year, the entire pyramid Ponzi scheme crumbled, crashed. It was one of the most embarrassing, humiliating things to our denomination that's happened probably in its history. They made, not the cover page, but they made a major article in Christianity Today. Missions lost money. National office lost money. Regions lost money. I'm talking not thousands of dollars. I'm talking about a lot of money was lost. Um, he went to jail. Spent several years in jail. Just got out a couple years ago. And our small Bible college was the loan department that understood that wisdom is calling from the marketplace and from the square and from the public streets. Wisdom is on the outside. It is dangerous to be ingrown, to be isolated, to be independent. There are people out there that know more than you know. There are people out there that have more experience than you have. So draw from it. Draw from it. I wish somebody would have taught me early on how important networking is. I did not know how important networking was till I was in my mid to late 40s. By that time, I served as president of a couple organizations already. And I think back how much difference it would have made if I'd have understood the importance of networking. Lots of stories I could tell you about that. Let's go on to the second warning. I want to talk to you about uh, the trap of co-signing now. These are... <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh, somebody's had experience. <laughs> we could have stories here, couldn't we? Now, well, let's just jump right into the scriptures. These are my scriptures. The reason I'm taking you here is because, remember I said these are just everyday practical wisdoms. These are tools in your chest of life. Let's go to the first scripture uh, right away. Proverbs 11:15. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer. But whoever refuses to shake hands in pledge is safe. Now let's look at another one. One who has no sense. There's another one of those in your face plain. One who has no sense shake hands in pledge and puts up security for a neighbor. 
Solomon just could not get away from this theme. I'm going to show you another five-verse section of it here in just a moment, but I want to talk to you first. When you co-sign, you agree to guarantee payment on someone else's debt. For those of you that don't understand, I know many of you do. If the borrower defaults, the lender is going to come after you and after your assets. Cosigners must pay the outstanding balance, and that's what most cosigners think. Well, I'm going to have to pay the balance on the loan. No. Cosigners pay the outstanding balance. They pay any accumulated interest. They pay any late fees. They pay any collection agency fees. They pay attorney fees. And the lender has the right, and remember, you're the cosigner. You didn't get the money. The lender has the right to sue you, to file a mechanics lien on your home and cloud the title on your property, and also has the right to garnish your wages. Co-signing has everything to do with character and a little bit about money. I know it seems like a kind way to help a family member or a friend, but remember this. According to the Federal Trade Commission, three out of four people that co-sign and guarantee a loan end up paying it off. Three out of four people. Stop and ask yourself, how could that be possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. It's because the people that ask you to co-sign in the beginning weren't credit worthy enough to get a loan from a bank or, a, or, or, or any lending organization. And so they came to you and asked you. Debt is a trap. Let's, re let's read Proverbs 6, 1 to 5. Proverbs 6, 1 to 5. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, now this is the third time Solomon's talking about it, and I'm only giving you three of several examples. So this is a big deal to Solomon. Wouldn't it be interesting to know why it was? My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself since you had, now notice that, to free yourself. I said debt is a trap. To free yourself, since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. He's talking right there about you are ensnared. You're in a trap. Dead as a trap. I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, Ramon and I were in our early 40s when we were approached by a business investment uh, it was a tech startup in the state of Montana that had the potential for huge returns. Um, in my university program on my, my master's degree, I had a class in venture capitalism, which basically is people that have money to invest, invest in new business startups. And uh, it's the highest, one of the highest risk things you can get engaged in. But if it works, you get the highest rate of return. It's just a huge amount of return. Well, this was a business startup in the state of Montana. It was two years into operation when I was approached. It had already appeared in Inc. Magazine as one of the top 100 business tech startups in the nation. This was a trailblazer. Everybody was talking about it. The state of Montana, the state of Montana had already invested millions and millions and millions of dollars in it. And when the man came to me, to invest in it, he was a trusted Christian friend, well-to-do. In fact, he was the man that I spoke of earlier that was an early investor in Nike that then invested in oil. 
that warned us not to do this other thing with the Bible college. Ramona and I, we were a single employer, single, what do I want to say? I was the only mom. Ramona worked at home. She was a working mom. She worked harder than I did raising the kids. We were a one-income family. That's what I'm wanting to say. We were a one-income family, and it was ministry income most of our life. So we didn't have a lot of money. We had $40,000 in a retirement account that had come from the years that I worked for the Sherwood Williams Corporation, and it was in an IRA. And he said, uh, well, you could use that. And I looked at him and I said, I won't call his name out and I'll switch it to Jim. I, that wasn't his name. I'll say, I say, Jim, that's all that we have. That's our retirement. I'm already in my mid forties. And uh, he said, yeah, but you'll quadruple that. You'll get five or six times that. And see, I trusted this guy. I, he's like a father to me. And I'm thinking, why would he counsel me to do this? So Ramona and I talked it over. So I went to him and I said, Jim, we will do it on one condition. We will do it if you will personally sign a note of guarantee <laughs> that if this business fails and we lose our money, that you out of your own retirement will give us our 40,000 back. Now the investment was to pay seven and a half percent and back then people weren't getting seven and a half percent. So it was a, so we were gonna get money as we went along but, and I told him he had to pay me the seven and a half percent too. So we did it, he signed the personal guarantee, he co-signed the note. And uh, about another year into the business and it failed. It defaulted, Montana lost its millions, investors, this guy, I mean, I know several people that invested in it. They all lost their money, except for me. <laughs> this guy, I respect him so much because I know how much he lost, and it's a big, big number. But he went into his personal IRA, and he paid me my 40000 and 7.5% because he was a Christian, and he had co-signed the note. Debt is a trap. Let's look at three things about every trap you need to know about. It's true of all traps. Donald, thank you for the cartoon. <laughs> the first thing you need to know about every trap is number one, it's attractive. There's no such thing as a trap that's not attractive. It doesn't matter whether you're catching a mouse or trying to you know, bait something else out there. Every trap is attractive. That includes the debt trap. Number two, every trap is very easy to get into. It wouldn't be a trap if it wasn't easy to get into it. Those credit card mailings that you get in the mail, you know, those are easy to get into. But the third thing about every trap you need to know is they're virtually impossible to get out of. They're virtually impossible to get out of. For some reason, King Solomon, the wisest man around, wrote over and over and over about this one thing. So I have to believe, since the Holy Spirit quickened it to me, that the timing is right for somebody or several of you somebody's in here to be aware of the trap of cosigning. Now the third warning. Let's talk about the third warning. The third warning is taken from Proverbs 10.5, sleeping in harvest. Let's look at Proverbs 10.5. 
He who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. While the context has to do with laziness and sloth, the messianic implications for harvest are rich and convicting in the book of Proverbs. Do you remember where Jesus said he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them? His heart melted with compassion and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers into the fields. Do you know that that is the only time that I can find in all the New Testament where Jesus made a personal prayer request? It's the only time. Jesus, we're encouraged to pray. He taught us how to pray. But I'm talking about where he made a prayer request and said, would you please pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the field? There's so few of them. When John writes about it in John 4, 35 to 38, he says, don't say there's four months and then the harvest. Don't say there's four months and then the harvest. It says, look up, open your eyes. The fields are already white in the harvest. If you think that Proverbs doesn't talk about evangelism or soul winning, you're wrong. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 30. Solomon wrote, he who wins souls is wise. Do you know we all celebrate different things in our life? But I have to tell you the greatest party, the greatest celebration in my entire life was when I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. And as a senior in high school, wept my way to Calvary at an old-fashioned altar. And it changed me forever. And I love the Lord and I love this life of knowing and serving Christ and nothing breaks my heart more than to know and this is a fact it's been researched over and over than to know that the church is silent about its witness most Christians never share their faith with anybody and it is a disgraceful son or daughter who sleeps during the harvest no condemnation here this morning, okay? That's not of God. But conviction of the Spirit, conviction, that is of God. The fields are white. All around you, people are going down the third time, broken, bruised, and battered, helpless and hurting and homeless. All around you, people are crying out for help. Sometimes they're dressed in three-piece suits with a shirt and a tie, and you'll never know it. And their makeup is just perfect and they look great. But inside they're screaming out for help. And they just need somebody to come alongside and love them. You don't have to be, you don't have to be an apologist. You don't have to be a great evangelist. You don't have to be called to the Ephesian 4 office of evangelist. But we do have a responsibility to know the names of our neighbors, to pray regularly for our neighbors, family members that are unsaved, Live, a, beloved, live a prayer, care, share lifestyle. They rhyme. They're supposed to rhyme. That's so you remember it. Prayer, care, share. Live a prayer, care, share lifestyle. Pray for people that don't know Jesus. And then look for an opportunity to care for them, whether it's giving them cookies or mowing their lawn when they're gone on vacation. But show care to them. If you will do those two things, I promise you, because it works over and over and over for Ramona and I, I promise you, that the Holy Spirit will open a door of opportunity 
for you to share with them. In fact, they'll almost drag it out of you. It is a disgraceful son or daughter that sleeps during the harvest. Um, a quick story, and then we're going to move on from warnings to strategies for success. Um, in 2 Kings, the nation of Israel, Samaria, the northern kingdom, Samaria was the capital, was surrounded by Ben-Hadad's army. Uh, they had laid siege to him, and Israel was in famine, terrible famine. Uh, we don't know what famine is, but to give you an illustration from, from 2 Kings, they were so desperate for food that they were starting to eat donkeys. Not the meat of the donkey. I'm talking about the head of the donkey. Now, in Mosaic law, the donkey was unclean meat anyway. But the head of the donkey, I mean, nobody would even want to eat anything on the head of a donkey. You can imagine. But do you know, it says in 2 Kings that it took 80 shekels of silver 80 shekels of silver for someone to buy a head of a donkey so they could eat it. If you know anything about econ uh, uh, economics and supply and demand, then what happens when you're in famine, everything, the price goes up. It just shoots through the roof. And so the people are dying. Inflation is up. And along comes Elisha the prophet. And he tells the king of Israel that tomorrow, about this time, the price of everything is going to be in the bottom. I mean, that's not what he, he says, you know, a, a sea of flour is only going to cost this much. And, but the point is, he says, tomorrow at this time. Now, now that's impossible because they've laid siege to them. The arm, this huge, massive army is surrounding them. And uh, there are four lepers outside of the city by the gate. And they start talking to themselves and they say, you know, we're going to starve to death here. They said, if we go into the city, we're going to starve. We're going to die because it's a famine in there. They don't want us. They might stone us because we're unclean. If we stay here by the gate, we're going to starve to death and die too. So what do you say, guys? Let's go into the camp of our enemy. And they'll either kill us, which we're going to die anyway, or they might show mercy on us and save us. So they get up. And they go into the enemy camp early in the morning, and they don't find anybody. Everybody's gone. It's the enemy camp is empty because during the nighttime, the Lord made the sound of horses and chariots so loud to all of the enemy that they thought the king of Israel had hired uh, uh, an alliance, made an alliance with the Hittites or the, the Egyptians, and they were bringing armies. And so they all fled. They ran away. So here are these four lepers, and they go into the first tent, and it's filled with silver and gold and clothing and food galore. And they start eating and helping themselves, and they're just having a good time. And they go in the next tent, and they uh, get there, and there's food again and silver and gold and clothing. And so they're just having a wonderful time. And then one of them says this to the other one. I want you to see it. Second Kings nine, 7, verse 9. Let's have it on the side. They said to each other, what, are we, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. Okay, there you have it. What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. It speaks for itself, doesn't it? What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to... I'm going to pause just a minute and pray. Father, in Jesus' name, will the Holy Spirit please 
keep nudging us and poking us and pricking us and encouraging us to be joyful witnesses of your love in the lives of those who are perishing around us. Lord, please, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the gift of Christ, Calvary, the blood and the word. But let us not be selfish and keep it to ourselves. Let us not be ashamed of you before men, lest you be ashamed of us before the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's move on strategies for success. The first one is very similar. Um, wow. Okay, the first one is very similar. Let's go directly to the, uh, yeah, two are better than one. It almost sounds like the first one where we talked about wisdom is on the outside, but it's not exact. Let's go to the scriptures right away. Um, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Let's look at the next one real quickly. For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Um, the bottom line is, is that teams outperform individuals. The two are better than one. You, you see that theme all through Proverbs. Teams outperform individuals. This is another illustration of where I wish my father or a coach or somebody would have sat me down and said this. Now, I, I recognize that you say, oh, that's obvious. We all know that. We all know teams outperform individuals. Do you know how much we do on our own and we don't take the time to reach out to others to help us accomplish stuff? We could get it done faster. We could get it done better. And something happens in terms of relationships that's birthed from heaven when you're with people and when you're with family. That wouldn't happen when you're alone. Uh, we have a picture of geese flying up here. It's just one of nature's many ways of teaching us this lesson. Did you know that when the, uh, I should have one of those laser things that points to the picture. When the goose that's in front flaps his wings down, he creates an upwash of air for the goose that's behind him. Have you ever been in the water and you put your hands down real hard and around your hands the water comes up? That's what happens in the air. When the goose in front flaps his wings down, it creates an upwash of air behind him and the goose behind doesn't have to labor so hard in flying. And then the geese rotate because the person, the, the person, the goose in the front, the goose in the front is fighting all the wind. And so they rotate, and the goose in the front goes to the back, and they just keep doing that. And do you know that together they fly 71% farther in distance than if they were doing it alone? See, two is always better than one. When we lived in Eugene, Oregon, we saw several large fir trees crash through, in one case kill a neighbor, and in other cases just destroy half of the house. Uh, what happened is when they built the neighborhood association, they cut out all the fir trees except for the ones they wanted to look pretty. But fir trees have shallow root systems. And when they get wet and the wind blows, if it doesn't have another tree to lean against and to support one another, they start falling. Uh, another, another illustration, a little more, more fun from memory, has to do with bathtub races in Wichita, Kansas. Um, we... Wichita, Kansas has the Arkansas River going straight through the middle of it, and they decided to build a beautiful riverfront and have a big river festival every year. So the first year, and they're still doing it, they have what's called the bathtub race between two bridges. And there were only two rules if you wanted to race in the bathtub race. The first rule was that um, you could only have two people in the tub, no more than two people. 
in the tub. And the second rule was that the tub had to move by human power. You couldn't use gas, you couldn't use propane, you couldn't use electricity, you couldn't use wind, you couldn't use solar. It had to move by human power. So, of course, everybody thinks about, you know. So the first year, I was there when they did it the first year, it was the most comical, ridiculous thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Trying to get these bathtubs to float, number one, to get two people in them and give them these canoe paddles and, and they'd race for a mile between the two bridges. Well. Somebody started reading the rules and figured out that even though it said only two people could be in the tub, it didn't say a thing about preparing the unit. And so they started, see, Wichita is the air capital of the world. Did you know that? Wichita is the air capital of the world. Boeing Beach, Cessna, Learjet, um, I don't know, they've, everybody buys themselves, everybody else. So now, uh, but anyway, they started getting engineers from the aircraft industry and all these different people to help them design their tub so it could go faster down the Arkansas River. And the next thing you know, they're working with gear, sophisticated gears on oars that have some kind of a torque ratio that converts this little bit of human power into this massive push of water and these tubs are going down the river as fast as you've ever seen in your life. See. See, two are better than one. Two are better than one. Teams always outperform individuals. So uh, let's get the last, last uh, by the way, as we, as we get ready to go to Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12, um, I want you to know, first of all, I'm not wanting to minimize the importance of individual performance. I, you know, as a father, if I was speaking to my sons, I would say to you, individual performance is critically important. It's critically important. You should always do your best. The scriptures bear that out over and over again. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, the Bible says. Uh, I was an Eagle Scout, and the, you know our thing said, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. I will do my best. I believe that we always have to do our best, but what nobody quite made clear to me until later in life is that no matter how good my best is, it's not as good as two together. Now let's look at this, see what the word of God says from Solomon. Solomon wrote this, but it's in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Let's move quickly to ruling your spirit. The second one, Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than the one who takes a city. Um, I'm a red, I used to be a redhead. I'm not a redhead anymore. I used to be a redhead. Redheads are known for their temper, right? Redheads are known for their temper. I had a temper. Uh, I didn't know Jesus. I grew up, I can remember as a boy. Anybody here ever play Candyland or Shoots and Ladders? Oh yeah, well I'll bet some of you grandmas still play it with your grandchildren, don't you? Okay, I used to play that with my brother and sister. I can remember calling them cheaters. They weren't cheating, I was losing, that was the problem. And I would take my hands and I would scatter the pieces all over the room. I would put them down there, scatter them all over the room, throw the board away, and I'd walk away and I'd say, you guys are cheating. Um, I, I played tennis, that was my, one of my letter sports in high school. 
And um, I wasn't a John McEnroe, but I threw my tennis racket more than once. But I came to Christ late in my senior year, and that was part, part of what changed me. But do you know what the real transformational change was about ruling my spirit? It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit into my life. It says in Galatians 5, and it's so clear, it says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then it lists the works of the flesh, and one of them is outbursts of temper. The flip side of that, when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit is peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. So whether you're leading a home or leading a department or leading a business or leading a major organization, a multinational organization, whatever you're leading, favor and success depends on the ability to rule your own spirit. As president of four different organizations, I can tell you people have walked in my office door ready to sue me, just sue the pants right off me, angry as all get out, just angry and threatening, and it's the soft answer. It's the soft answer. It's ruling your spirit that turns away wrath. So anyway, let's go quickly to honor before humility, or uh, humility before honor. This is another Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 18.12 says this. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If you'll allow me to look at my notes, because I'm trying to really hurry, hurry quickly. God doesn't use anything until it's broken first. Until it's emptied and poured out. The kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Before success, you always have to have a mess. And that's just the way it is. I learned that in summer jobs. Um, I worked in a diaper service. Some of you have never heard of cloth diapers before. I have to laugh about it. I've poked, I've poked diaper safety pins through my finger and they've bled so bad and hurt so bad. I worked my, my summers in high school, I worked in a diaper service. Those were moms who used cloth diapers like we all did back in those days. And they didn't have time to launder them so they'd put them in this plastic bucket with a deodorizer on the underneath side of the lid and they'd rinse them out in the toilet you know, wring them out and then put them in the diaper bucket and then our truck would come around and pick them up and we'd wash them in these massive laundry units and I was in charge of the dryers and I had a whole wall of dryers, just a bank of dryers and they never went off uh, except when you were, had to unload them and uh, I'd have like 10 on top and 10 on the bottom and if you burned, if you burned them, you could do that. They were so hot you could, you could burn them. But... Uh, all my friends, I had a, uh, one of my good friends, his dad was owned a bank, so he was working with a white shirt and a tie in the bank, and I was doing diapers. I have cleaned, I have cleaned, my first job as a youth pastor, I cleaned the bathrooms. I was the janitor of the church. Uh, the only reason I'm telling you that is there's a sense of entitlement today. Do you hear that? You hear that phrase on television a lot. If you watch news, you, you hear the sense of entitlement. The younger generations, you know, they think their parents owe them something, their employer owes them something, their government owes them something, the world, the world owes me. It's a sense of entitlement. And I'm telling you, that's not what the word of God says. The way to the crown is through the cross. The way to the crown is always through the cross. The world lives so it can die. We die so that we can live. 
It's a whole different paradigm. It's a whole different paradigm. In this life of knowing and serving Christ, before honor is humility. Um, generosity, and let's go to the promises to possess. I want to share three of those very quickly. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Let's look at the passage. These are three promises. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. That's the first passage of Scripture I can remember memorizing after I was saved, and that's because I was in a Sunday school class, and that's what the teacher taught on. And uh, I will tell you that I've never looked back. After I heard that, I have never looked back. There's never been a time that I can remember that I know of in my life that I didn't get a paycheck or a gift or some kind of money that the first 10% at least went to the Lord. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your crop. When we had gardens, we, we liked to garden. When we have a garden, the first produce. We don't eat the first tomato or the first squash or the first cucumber. It's the first produce. You, you know, you give it away. You give it to the Lord. I learned very early on that God can do more with 90% of my income than I can do with 100% of it. And all through Proverbs, it talks about this principle. Uh, but we don't have time to talk about that. I can, I can tell you stories. When Ramona and I, I can remember thinking if can of tuna was too expensive. I can remember thinking tomato soup and a can of tuna, my favorite lunch, we just couldn't afford. My last year in uh, my undergraduate work, we lived in a converted barn, literally in a converted barn. And uh, there was a slough in the back with rancid water in it. At night, the rats would come up and get inside the walls between the outside wall and the inside wall. One morning, we woke up and we had a little baby, Eileen, our little daughter, and a rat was chewing its way through the plaster. You could see his nose and his whiskers working its way into the room of our little nursery. Um, I'll tell you what, we didn't have a lot, but there never was a time that we didn't honor God first. And I will tell you, if you will do that, no matter what your circumstances financially, God will give you favor and success. Possess that promise and don't let it go. Let's look at Proverbs 9, 10 to 11 very quickly. Proverbs 9, 10 to 11, I want you to read it with wisdom. Uh, no, we're skipping, there you go. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding for through wisdom, listen to this, for through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. I want to talk to you just very quickly about long life and added years. Um, and I can't, I can't tell you too much about it because I'll tell you, I'm 69. Um, I'm not in my 80s yet or my 90s yet. So I can't tell you whether I'll be able to possess this promise in its entirety. I can tell you, I just heard yesterday on the radio, I wasn't looking for it, that the average age of death in America is 79.6 years. And that includes the person that, 20 years of old, 20 years of age that dies on their motorcycle in an accident all the way to the person that goes to 105 and is living in a nursing home and is still walking around and doing fine. But the average age is 79.6 years. But it turns out that in multiple places in the book of Proverbs, it talks about adding years to your life and prolonging your life. And I'm thinking, well, what's that all about? You know, what about people that, you know, get cancer and die? I might lost my sister at 57. I, um, let's look at another verse here real quickly. Proverbs uh, 3, 1 to 2. Uh, 
My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years. The reason I'm pausing is I'm skipping a bunch of material that I have in my notes. I'm going to close that section and then go to my final verse. This second promise to possess that we're talking about, about long years and adding to your life. I have taken note in my spirit that it nowhere says that Christians will have a long life and added years. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that Christians will have long life and added years. What the Bible says is that if you will fear the Lord and walk in his wisdom, and if you will know the Holy One, not know about him, but know him, there's a big difference, if you will know the Holy One, and if you will possess his promises and his word, his teachings, his statutes, his precepts, read them and memorize them and live through them out of a biblical worldview. Filter everything you do through the scriptures and the word of God so that all your decision making is based on a biblical worldview. It says that if you will do that, he will add years to your life. Now, the final passage that I want to talk to you about. It's Proverbs 20, 27. And it says this, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. So with a young man on the front aisle like this right here, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> your, your spirit is the lamp of the Lord. The first hurdle we have to get over is we have to recognize that you're not bipartite like an animal. You don't have just a body and a soul. Soul being your mind, your emotion, and your will. We, you hear people interchange the word soul and spirit all the time as though they're the same thing. Nothing could be farther from the truth of God's word or life as it really is. You have much more than a body and a soul. You were created in the image of God and the highest part of your being is a spirit. The highest part of your being is a spirit. That's the part of you made in the image of God. And that is the part of you that the Holy Spirit inflames and ignites to be the lamp and the candle and the light of the Lord in your family, in your neighborhood, on the job, and in your culture. John 4.24 says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so when God's spirit connects with your spirit through the breaking in of the Holy Spirit into your life, you can be an inferno for God where you are. You can expect the supernatural where you go. You can anticipate miracles around you. I was just talking to a brother this morning that's that's visiting the church. And as a 18 year old boy, he, he encountered the supernatural God for the first time when he walked into church and didn't know anybody there. And the lady that was a missionary said, you must be Jerry Ott. He didn't know the lady. He didn't know her, he'd never met her. She didn't know him. 
God's up to all kinds of things in this dark world. We live in a dark, dark world. And the Lord is looking for lights and lamps. Now, I know Pharaoh's dead, but the spirit of Pharaoh is not dead. The spirit of Pharaoh that enslaves and puts people in bondage. I know Goliath is dead, but I'll be the first one to tell you the spirit of Goliath is not dead. He still is intimidating people and bringing fear to people. I know Jezebel's dead, but the spirit of Jezebel is not dead. The spirit of Jezebel is still causing you to run and hide in a cave. Hiding sin, hiding your calling. And we could march through scripture that way. The spirit of Herod's not dead. Herod's dead, but the spirit of Herod is not dead. It's alive and well, still killing children through abortion, through violence, through sex trafficking, and any number of ways. And the heart of God is crying out for lamps. See, Jesus said in Matthew 4, 5, chapter 5, 14 through 16, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill should never be hid. But we, we allow a basket or a bowl, the newer translations say, we allow a bowl to be put over us and to hide our flame. Don't let the spirit of Pharaoh or the spirit of Jezebel or the spirit of Absalom that's dividing homes still, dividing churches, dividing relationships. Don't let these dark spirits because you see, the spirit of God wants to connect with the spirit of man, the spirit of woman. It's the highest part of your being. The curse is still around. I, I recognize that. The curse is still here. But when you were created, loved one, when you were created, you were spirit, soul, and body. The highest part of your being was your spirit. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that turned upside down. And now we live life letting our body and our soul direct and guide our life, our body being our sense consciousness, right? So we lead with our body or we lead with our soul, strong will, emotional, or mind, intellect, wisdom, knowledge, education. Huh. The kingdom of God advances when you allow the spirit of God to ignite your spirit. Be a lamp for the Lord. Be the light of the world. You're called. I know you are. I know God's going to use you in his kingdom. And I want you to know that your spirit is the lamp of the Lord. Connect with God's Holy Spirit.